Stu does America. Uh, Joe Biden's Senility Now leadership, uh, which, by the way, you can get the Senility Now T-shirt at StuDoesMerch.com. If you use the code Stu10, you can show all your friends that you understand the president is a senile buffoon. Uh, But uh, his leadership is just more and more bizarre by the day. I mean, we honestly... We came up with this Joe Biden gaff triangle of emotion, thinking we'd use it once or twice. We could use it every single day. Like, for example, watch this. I understand. That's why I've got a plan to lower the cost for everyday things that make most people who work to have, who need. And that would have fundamentally changed the standard of living if we just made things more affordable. Wait, what? I, I understand. That's why I've got a plan to lower the cost for everyday things that make most people who work to have who need and that would fundamentally change the standard of living if we just made things more affordable. These are like they're he just throws these words like again, like that one I would say is more on the sad part of the triangle of emotion. I mean, it's a little funny as well. Kind of scary, a little scary, but mostly just sad. And that's the state of affairs in our country right now. Under President Joe Biden, the whole thing's kind of just sad. It's also scary. It's not very funny. The whole situation is just pretty sad. Uh, Here he is. I mean, I wouldn't even do a triangle for this one, but you could have easily utilized it. Here's Joe Biden talking about inflation. And I agree with what Chairman Powell said last week, that the number one threat is the strength and that strength that we built is inflation. The strength that we built is inflation. Here's the problem. I don't think that one was a gaffe. I don't think it's on the gaffe triangle of emotion because I think he kind of means it. He has this weird thing that he thinks he's going to do to convince the American people that inflation is good. He first told you it didn't exist. Then he told you it was transitory. And now he's telling you it's good. And then he was telling you, uh, I think, uh, something about squirrels that were, he believed were in, uh, in his hair. And I, I don't, that was a different part of the speech, but uh, it was just, just, just as powerful as the others. Look, the, the economy is in real trouble right now. I was talking about uh, this with a friend of mine uh, who, you know, follows this stuff closely. And I was like, what's your vibe on the economy overall? And he said, look, I think we are in for really rough times. I mean, look, they're going to we're going to come out of this eventually, I hope. Um, You know, it may take a long time. But you look at even where we are as far as uh, the, the the. the general sort of flow of an up and down cycle. And I don't think we're at the bottom yet. Do you? I mean, do you look at this president and the way this is going right now and you're saying this is it? It's only up from here. I don't think that's where we, I think we have a good way to go before we see the bottom here. And that is scary because so many people are already struggling. You know, look, you can't unplug an economy. I think that's a lesson that should be learned here. It's one that we were on you know, very early, obviously, on this program and probably a lot of other programs you watch here on The Blaze. But in the mainstream media, that was not the case. It was, why don't we shut down more? Why aren't more kids not in school? Why aren't more kids uh, kept, out, uh, you know, kept out of school so their parents have to stay home? Why did we open all these shops so early? It's dangerous. And at the time... What happened was we spent as much money as is humanly possible to try to offset this and basically, you know, uh, blur out all the real problems that we were going to have when you unplug an economy and turn it off for a period of time. And you can do that. You can you can smooth over the the the, the deep drops and make pe- people not feel the pain right away. But eventually it comes back and you do feel it. We did a show. I want to say I don't think we have the date, but it was something like in April. And this show, I want to say it was April 2020. And we had just kind of had this first mini sort of buyout package. And they were talking about doing another one. And I I did a whole show on, hey, guys, like, we're, how much money are we going to spend on this? Like, I understand we asked everyone to kind of stay home for a couple weeks, and you can't really do that without uh, filling in the gaps at some level. I understand the argument here for this first one, but we're going to do another rescue package? Oh, how naive I was at the time. We wound up doing, I think, 1,000. 
rescue packages. And, you know, look, it was uh, during the President uh, Trump's uh, um, presidency when he spent something like three or four trillion dollars on COVID. It was a much more defensible, understandable uh, expenditure as, as opposed to what we've done since Joe Biden came in. But I mean, we were at a point where Joe Biden uh, had his own advisors saying, hey, don't do this. We do not need to spend another one point nine trillion dollars. You already got the, the, the vaccines out there. You got treatments out there. You, you, people can go back to work here. We don't need another one point nine trillion dollars. This economy is going to get overheated already. Now we're seeing the ramifications of all that. Another trillion dollars, which, by the way, was a bipartisan bill that went through on infrastructure is another cause of all this inflation. And it's just going up and up and up and up. And now we're seeing the markets say, uh oh, you know, Jerome Powell, who's a guy, he's kind of an acolyte, um, a Volcker from back in the day. He saw what happened in the early Reagan days and looked at it positively. And, and look, in those days, raising rates was the right thing to do. May very well be the right thing to do now, but we're going to pay a price. This, this, this is painful when they do this. They're going to be raising rates. These markets are going are to pay. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. We're in for what seems to be a pretty rough cycle here. All the markets are down. And we're getting what is apparently now just an American tradition that every time cryptocurrency goes down, everyone says it's the end of the market. I will say this part of it kind of makes me smile because people are now blaming Matt Damon. Now, (laughs) look, Matt Damon made a commercial where he was on like a space station and he's walking through. This is for Crypto.com, I think it was. And he's walking through and uh, he's saying fortune favors the brave, I believe it is. And first of all, I mean, look, you got to be brave to get into cryptocurrency, but I don't know that we need to encourage more people to just go crazy and bet money on crypto. There's enough people doing that already. That's already part of the culture. Um, So but, you know, Crypto.com Arena, they're spending all this money on uh, on Matt Damon. And I will say uh, even more offensive is they also gave LeBron James a big Super Bowl commercial which is the worst thing anyone has ever done, obviously. Uh, I will say, you know, and I've said this before on on the Twitters, I follow Crypto.com. I'm a customer of Crypto.com and have been for a a while. They appear to be in a death spiral. I I have no inside information on this, but I will say they're changing all their rates. They seem to be trying to chase away large customers from their platform. Uh, They they are making it impossible to utilize it. Uh, and they just they're doing what I remember movie pass doing where like it was like, oh, you guys can see as many movies as you want for nine ninety five a month. OK, you can't see as many as you want. How about three a month? That'll be great. Nine ninety five. How about two a month for twelve ninety five? Is that OK? Well, you can't see any movie, obviously, at any theater. How about you can see one movie at this theater at three in the morning once every three months? That's our final offer. And uh, oh, we're out of business. That was kind of the movie pass story. Crypto.com seems to be going through the same type of thing right now, which is pretty scary for people who have been there for a while. You know, there's a lot of promise here, but I do like the fact that everybody's blaming Matt Damon. The only thing I would complain about is start blaming LeBron James because he's at least as responsible, probably more because he's LeBron James. I want to go through a little bit of this on the crypto side, though, to keep things into perspective a little bit. One of the complaints, of course, is every time crypto goes down, we get this flurry of headlines about how, you know, crypto is dead. Here we go. Bloomberg, the crypto winter winter is here. Guardian, NFT scams, toxic mines and lost life savings. The cryptocurrency dream is fading fast. Crypto is imploding. Here's all you need to know. Uh, Financial Times, the sun starts to set on the Wild West days of crypto. We'll have more on that coming up later in the show. Lehman moment for the crypto market? Experts say 90% of tokens may be wiped out? Wow, that's a hell of a prediction. And of course, the spectator, crypto is dead. Look, cryptocurrencies are very, uh, uh, very up and down. Okay, we've seen this. If you've been in this world for a while, you're very familiar with this process. There's ups and there's downs. The ups seem to be higher than the downs over time. I don't know if anyone's noticed that, and apparently not. And what they're doing in the media right now is, for some reason, they see something that's decentralized out of the hands of the power of government is not regulated. They can't allow you to enjoy it. So what they're going to do is call it dead every single time. They called it dead 
many times before even the 2017 bubble. And certainly after in 2018 and 19, they called it dead over and over and over again. And, you know, here it is. It's still much higher than even the peak of that bubble. I mean, it's really amazing. But I thought we'd look at this real quick, because if crypto is dead, uh, sure, you can look at the absolute peak when Elon Musk is on Saturday Night Live and everyone's at the very highest point of a, a very hyped up market and say that people have lost money. Yes, if you bought money on that day or if you bought crypto on that day, yes, you've lost you've lost some cash. I feel bad for you. I hope you didn't put in more than you can handle. That's always the advice I give everybody on crypto. It's very, very up and down. It's very volatile. Uh, the ups are fun. The downs suck, especially if you buy really, really at the worst possible point. But I decided let's look back for, for a second and compare a normal set of investments, the Dow Jones, compared to crypto and what that would mean to you looking back. Because everyone's telling you this is dead. Well, how is, it, how is this working out for people overall? It's been a tough you know, six months to a year for cryptocurrencies. So let's look at this a little bit. If a year ago you put $10,000 in the Dow, today you would have $9,630. You'd be down, but just a little bit. If you put that $10,000 in Bitcoin, you'd only have $8,500. So you would be down more than you would be in the Dow if you invested the equal amount of money of $10,000 about a year from uh, your previous of today. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you'd be down a little bit, but maybe you'd be okay with that type of risk. I don't know. But let's not just stop there. Let's not stop at the peak and let the highest point and compare it to today. Let's take it back a little bit more time. We keep hearing over and over again that Bitcoin is failing because Bitcoin uh, is supposed to be an inflation hedge and it's not working. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this inflationary period, which, of course, starts right after the downfall uh, of the economy from crypto. And as it's bouncing back two years ago today, if you invested in the Dow two years ago today, you'd make a pretty good return. Thirteen thousand four hundred dollars. So you're going from ten thousand to thirteen thousand four hundred. That's a good, solid return. If you put that same amount of money in Bitcoin, however, you would have $33,500. Well, maybe I just picked a fancy period for Bitcoin, right? I'm, I'm a Bitcoin guy. You know, I like the crypto stuff. So maybe I picked the best period possible. Let's go back a year before that, two, uh, two, three years ago. If you put $10,000 in the Dow three years ago, you would have $12,700 today. Uh, you know, that's an okay return. You know, not, not bad, but not super impressive. If you put that same money in Bitcoin on the same day, you would have $35,900. Again, it seems to be working pretty well for a lot of people who have decided to stay in it for any period of time. How about four years ago? Let's go back to four years ago. If four years ago you put $10,000 in the, in the Dow, you'd have $13,300. Again, that's not a terrible return. It's better than keeping it in a bank account, certainly. Nothing wrong with money in the stock market. However, if you put that in Bitcoin, you'd have $34,600. Again, much, much higher, almost you know, three times as much money. Let's go back five years just to see how that one goes. Five years ago, you put $10,000 in the Dow. You would have $15,800. Again, you made some money there. Nothing wrong with making some money. However, if you put that same $10,000 in Bitcoin, you would have $144,200 if you just stayed in it five years. Yet every piece of coverage about crypto is about some scam project or some failed project or how crypto is dead. How many times do we have to tell the same story? Does anybody believe these people anymore? You know, we're seeing this story play out in the economy because of massive failures from this president. And we could go through his entire presidency and it's hard to find any successes. I can't find one. I can't find one. That's why they like this abortion thing so much, because at least it's something. At least their base is with them on this. Their base is not with them on inflation. Their base is not with them on any of this stuff that's ruining their lives. The Fed now is confronting why it may have acted too slowly on inflation. This is a story we talked about over and over and over again. We said inflation is here. They said, no, it's not. We sa they said inflation is transitory. We said, no, it's not. And now they've just admitted it. And everyone's supposed to just move on. Well, we're not going to move on. We're going to keep pointing it out. And we're going to make sure that people are held responsible or do everything that we can to hold them responsible. 
And now there's a new political approach from the president who realizes, okay, I got nothing. His most uh, popular policy right now is helping Ukraine, which again is not going uh, particularly well. I mean, I guess it's going better than Russia overrunning the entire country, but like this is exactly a success story. They were totally wrong uh, every step of the way on this thing. And that's their most popular policy. This is why they're going to the abortion thing so hard. But this came out. It said uh, Biden to blast Republicans as having no plan on inflation. The party that's out of power has no plan on the thing they said would happen if you passed two trillion dollars of spending and you did it anyway. And that's their fault somehow. I, I, I tweeted, I feel like this is the picture that they showed. And it's just Biden kind of staring out into space and probably thinking about ice cream. But I kind of picture him saying, like, what if follow me on this? Uh, what if we say they have no plan on inflation? It's just embarrassing at this point. And I have said this before and I will say it again. I am not the person who came into the Biden presidency with a lot of optimism. I did not think Joe Biden would be a good president. I didn't think a lot of the things he promised would come true. I didn't think he'd be a uniter. I didn't think he was a moderate. I didn't think he was competent. I didn't think he'd do a good job. But even with those expectations, it's almost impossible to quantify how terrible he has been at every aspect of his job since he walked into that building. It's it's incomprehensible to to attribute this to some sort of incompetence. I don't know. He couldn't be more incompetent than he is. And it might be worse than that. I'm happy to welcome Gregory Wrightstone back to the studio. He's the executive director of the CO2 Coalition and author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, which is a great read. You should definitely check it out. Gregory, happy Earth Day. Oh, back at you. Nice. I'm speaking this morning at the EarthX convention mm-hmm. uh, here at the Dallas Convention Center. So it's, it's a, a big great deal. opportunity to reach out to people that haven't heard this message before. Yeah, because I think a lot of, you know, uh, it's interesting because the Earth Day message, right, we are told this essentially is about being nice to the Earth. But should that be our goal? I mean, isn't the goal to make the Earth a nice place for people to live on? Exactly. In fact, I have a, a, an article that was just published this morning at the Washington Examiner, mm-hmm. and I, I, I ask, is, is it time to kill Earth Day? Because basically, when I went back and I looked... As a, I was in seventh grade at the time in 1970 when this rolled out. Mm-hmm. You're too young to remember it, <laughs> but at that point, if you're driving in your Chevy or Ford, you threw stuff out the window. Littering was rampant. Right. If you had an empty can, you threw it out the window. It was just in our, our air was terrible. Uh, our water, the Cuyahoga River caught fire. Yeah. Lake Erie was labeled dead. Uh, now Lake Erie is uh, its a mecca for sport fishing. Hmm. Uh, the three rivers of Pittsburgh were soiled oh. and polluted. They now hold a famous bass tournament there. Our air and water now is cleaner than it's probably been since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And according to the EPA, our air has increased. We've got 50% uh, better air than what we did uh, when they started this in, in 1990, going back to 1990. I don't think people understand that. Because I was in uh, Pittsburgh, I don't know, it's going back a few years now, and they had pictures of what Pittsburgh looked like. We were at one of the top of the you know mountains, yeah, kind yeah. of on the side, and you look down, and, and you couldn't even see the city yeah. from where we were standing. Now it's you know crystal clear. People don't understand that things are improving. This has gotten a lot better over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And by almost every metric we look at, our ecosystems from the poles to the equator are thriving and prospering. Humanity's benefiting from this. And it's it, it has a lot to do with, with us doing the right things technologically, but it's also uh, the, the combination of a modest warming. We've warmed about one degree since... 1850. It's mm-hmm. not that doesn't sound alarming to me. I don't know if it does to you. <laughs> not really. Not really. No. You combine that with increasing CO2, and it's 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 driving vegetation growth. We hear about deforestation. No, we should talk about reforestation again. In my article this morning in the Washington Examiner, I looked at uh, since 1953, mm-hmm. we've increased the forested area by 50 percent. 
In, in Pennsylvania, it's increased 500%. That's standing timber, the acres of standing timber in the United States. So our, our forested areas are expanding, not contracting. Uh, and we just, we can go down the whole laundry list. It would take me an hour to go through yeah. everything of things that you're being told that are tragedies, that are disasters that just aren't happening. Fires are, uh, we're 20% of the forest fires, area burned of what it was back in the 20s and 30s. And we're being told just... Your, your listeners, your viewers have never heard that. Yeah, you know, I, I think there, there's something we're really bad at as human beings, which is understanding the long-term trend versus what's in the news right at the second. You know, like we see a bad storm happen. We see a, a terrible fire happen. And of course, the news immediately embraces that this is a result of global warming. Um, but when we look at the long-term trends, I mean, just that you look at the trend of people who have died in climate-related disasters, we're down over 95%. 98%. 98%. 98%. It's a miracle. It, it is. It's, it's partially, probably the biggest part of that is warning systems. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a tornado coming. The sirens go off. We know that they're coming. Get to your basement. So, and the same with hurricanes. We can say... Uh, if you were in Galveston in 1911 when that hurricane hit, you didn't know it was coming. And mm -hmm. it so we've got better warning. That's probably the it's biggest huge. thing. But it's just completely opposite of what we're being told. We're being told that, that natural disasters are increasing. In fact, uh, the UN report, well, actually it was the UN's uh, World Meteorological Organization, we just exposed their study that claimed a five-fold increase in natural disasters. And we took a look at that same data and concluded that since 2000, Natural disasters have been in significant decline. They they manipulate what they do is they manipulate the data and torture torture the data with statistics until they get the answer they want. And that's what they did in this case. We see the same thing with extinctions. Uh, yeah, extinctions are claimed to be skyrocketing, mm -hmm. and and they show charts. Uh, again, we went back and looked at that same data to find that extinctions peaked in the early late 1800s, early 1900s, and they've been in significant decline. They claimed that there will be one million species go extinct over the next several decades. You know what it's been for the last 40 years? The average, again, that would take 25,000 to 30,000 species going extinct over the, each year. It's been two, not 2,000, not 200, two species two. going extinct average over the last 40 years. Oh, well, we'll get to 25,000. No, we won't. The big story there should mm. be, we're doing, we being us as humanity in America, are doing a really good job protecting our endangered species, and we should be proud of that. Yeah, that I, I think there's a, there's a line that happens in life where you start off and you start you know, improving your life, maybe earning money, starting with technological advancement, and a society does that, and they don't care really about the environment until they can guarantee their own survival and that, that they can flourish. And then these things start to improve because people want them to improve. And that, I think, is the pattern we've seen over the United States. Early on, you know, as you point out, we were throwing food, you know, throwing wrappers out the windows and, ah. and everything. That stuff changes over time because people start to have the ability to focus on it. Exactly. And that's why I think we should kill Earth Day because it's evolved. Mm. It, it, should be, it should be a celebration of the many benefits we're seeing accruing to the Earth and, and our ecosystems. But instead, it's a it's a disaster fest of, of horror stories that are made up. In fact, they had to invent a completely new pollutant, CO2. Mm. Uh, they call it the demon molecule. It, it should be called the miracle molecule uh, because of the many benefits we're seeing. Again, mainly to plant life, but then we have all those other uh, factors that accrue and benefit from that increased vegetation that we see. Crops are breaking records year after year. And it's not just... And it's in countries like India. Uh, our, our research associate, Vijay Jayaraj, is from India. He writes a lot about energy poverty. He's got an article coming out about Indian agriculture, one of the hottest countries on earth. Mm. And they're breaking records year after year. These are good things. And you, know, and you, you plot the CO2 in the atmosphere against you know, age expectancy and population growth. And you, what you see is a real correlation there. And it is, it's, it, causation is part of it. Yeah. it. You know, being able to build a society and a civilization around dependable energy is the line between an advanced civilization and one that it, it puts all of its people at risk. Yeah, I use three terms, two, three descriptors when I talk about electricity and energy. It's reliable, abundant, and affordable. Those are the mm. main three, three things. Reliable, abundant, and affordable. Mm. Uh, the only way to get that is with fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, and oil. 
Nuclear is reliable and abundant, but it's not affordable, hmm. uh, not the way they do it today. Right. Uh, wind is, you can't describe wind with any of those three descriptors. <laughs> right. it, it's, it's intermittent, it's not reliable, it's not abundant. It's what we call a very low-density energy source. Mm. Um, let me go to uh, what we're dealing with right now, because people are paying ton, a ton of money at the gas pump. The Biden administration goes back and forth from saying, to, they say to their side, to their supporters, we're doing everything we can to stop fossil fuel production because it's so bad. Then they come to the American people and say, what are you talking about? We haven't stopped any fossil fuel production. We, we, we're trying to get these oil companies to go out and drill more, but they're too greedy, which I don't under, it doesn't make any sense to me yeah. at all. What's the truth there? Yeah, one of the, one of the they, they called the leaders of some of these oil companies up before the House Inquisition, I'll call it, last two weeks ago. Mm. And one of, the, one of the House members there was interviewed by uh, Morning Joe, and <laughs> she said, uh, well, the companies, these companies need to produce less oil. And then about 30 seconds later, she says, these companies, the reason gasoline's so high, they need to produce more gasoline. <laughs> well, what is it? Right. Make up your mind. <laughs> and, and, and those same companies that were, they were saying two weeks ago, they need to produce more oil. A year ago, before the same inquisition, they were saying you have to stop production. Uh, it's just incredible that they can say both of these things and they know they can't get away at this point with telling the American people we're trying to shut down oil supply because they, you know, they, every, they know supply and demand, at least at the basic level. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot, Stu, that's, that Biden has done, the Biden administration, to hurt oil production and natural gas production. Uh, but just this Tuesday, probably the most harmful regulation was announced, and that's the National Environmental Policy Act. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to do is reimpose uh, climate change for every single uh, project if that's in construction. Is it roads, bridges? And this will affect uh, construction of, of wind, wind turbines and mm -hmm. solar farms. What it does is slows down the permitting process. And it, before, this, before Trump rolled back uh, these regulations, it took five years to the Interior Department for a permit to be issued. The Transportation Department was six and a half years. Think what that, if you want to do a project, yeah. you, you can't wait six and a half years for the permit. Right. And, and Trump era and his people roll back those regulations. And so it's, it's, it's going to be a death by a thousand regulatory cuts for a lot of these projects. Uh, this is tied into the ESG scores, right, where, we, where they're trying to add in essentially another layer of things they need to do to do these basic projects. That's bad, but mm -hmm. this is completely separate. Okay, okay. And it's, 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 uh, it, it, it goes under this, this the, the ESG scores has to do with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And, and right. so this is, uh, they're all bad. Okay. It's, it, it's, it's one thing on top of another. Like I say, it's a, a yeah, death of a thousand regulatory cuts. Kind of what I had read about it in that they are kind of feeding each other, um, yeah. which is a real problem. Okay, so let me uh, go to how do we solve this. I mean, especially long term. I get the sense, I grew up, in, you know, I was in high school in the 90s. Uh, I watched uh, a lot of these environmental programs. You know, even stuff like recycling, to me, as I got in, even as a conservative, it was so obvious that everyone was supposed to recycle and it was obvious good. And you go and you start looking at the de details of these things, and it's not obvious no. at all. In fact, no. there's a lot of problems with it. It's, a lot of this is because kids never hear the other side. I know you guys are trying to work on this and trying to present the actual truth here. Yeah, we are. In fact, I, I'm uh, the Daily Signal from... Uh, Heritage Foundation has a quote from me. Mm. They called me up and said, we want, want your comment. There was a 4-H poll that just came out two days ago where 87% of the 4-H students, these are the agriculture, the ag kids, we sure. call them in, in high school, yeah. the ag kids, 87% yeah. uh, believed that there was this looming man-made catastrophe. And they said, well, how do you explain that? And I said, well, it's, it doesn't surprise me because they've never heard the other side of the story. Yeah. All they've done is gotten preached death, doom, and despair, and it's because of us. They've never heard this. And uh, I've, I've had a chance to talk with, with young people. And when they, they hear the actual facts, they just did it on the airplane yesterday, uh, when they hear the actual facts, they go, wow, that's really good. And so I think this belief in a man-made catastrophic warm is a mile wide and an inch deep. But we, we yeah. start with the students. And at the CO2 Coalition, we're now going through an education initiative targeting uh, school children, and we've, it's, I'm so proud of what we've done there. Uh, we've got uh, the, our first comic book uh, was just yeah. published, mm -hmm. and it's it's pretty cool. Once upon a time, the true story of the miracle molecule carbon dioxide. Yeah. So yeah, heads will be exploding <laughs> yes. in the liberal communities. <laughs> 
uh, our next comic, uh, Simon the Solar Powered Cat. Oh, yeah. And so we've all actually actually put together uh, got a, a, a number of gifted uh, people that are part of the CO2 Coalition. These are PhDs in chemical engineering and physics and the like. Uh, we've put together four lesson plans right now. This is science-based uh, lesson plans without the woke agenda. Mm. Uh, we're presenting science only. Uh, we've got a series of videos coming up. Uh, the, the videos, the, the comics and the videos themselves are are really attractive, done anime style with our talented Brazilian artist. Mm. And so it's the kids, we've tested them out, uh, just love them. They, they, they went through and they go through and look, read the book. It's, I'm really proud of what we're done. And it's important to reach the, the school children with the true information. That's yeah. where we start. Because uh, I think, you know, pe- people maybe on the right side of the aisle have focused so much on universities over the years, which is great. I mean, and it, there's a lot of problems there. But you can't abandon K through 12. We're seeing the effects of that. And once they get to university, they're, a lot of them are already ruined, <laughs> oh, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, they've already gone down this road, so these things are doctrine to them, and they can't understand that there is another side. Yet none of them would choose to live 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. None of them would choose that. They want to live now, yet they think they're in such a, a, such a tortured yeah, time. They, exactly. They live in the best of times, yeah. not the worst of times, but they're being told that we live in the worst of times. And many of these, these kids actually do believe they're not going to grow up to be adults or have children. They're electing not to, the, the 20-somethings are electing not to have kids. They don't want to bring kids into this world. And that's well, terrible. And, it's, and again, if we look at the actual science facts and data, it's just the opposite. And like I said, it's the Earth's ecosystems are thriving and prospering. Uh, and we see that through, uh, I like to talk about looking through Earth's history and human history to find that other warming periods that were warmer than today were hugely beneficial for mankind. Crops were abundant, great empires arose, life was good, and it was the, it was the cold periods and when it started getting cold that was just they were just horrific that led to yeah. crop failure, mass depopulation. Uh, they they went by the names of the Greek or Greek dark ages and the dark ages for a reason because there wasn't much written during that time. Uh, the first great civilizations rose up during the Bronze Age, a really warm period, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and then all of those empires crashed within about 100 years. It was called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, mm. and it was, a, it was a sharp decline in temperature that probably led, led to that. Well, I mean, this is, I can tell you right now, I mean, I, I grew up in the Northeast, and I live in Texas because I wanted it to be warm instead of cold, too. Uh, that's just me. Uh, Gregory Wrightstone, uh, it's Earth Day. What, a, what better day to celebrate with Gregory Wrightstone than Earth Day? Uh, the book is an Incon- uh, Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Also, the, uh, where can people get the, uh, the comic book if they want to? Well, we're, uh, it's been published. We've got, I just got 5,000 delivered. We're working on a delivery system right now. I've got okay. to figure that out. So keep an but, eye on the website. And we're going we're gonna to have, I wanna, we're gonna have a series of four of these is a package set to go out. Really important. Stu does America. Have you ever had a moment in your entire life where you tweeted something and then you thought, I wish I hadn't tweeted that? I know Elon Musk has had that moment because he basically lost the CEO gig at his company because he kept tweeting about his stock price. Uh, And so maybe he would have loved to have an edit button on Twitter, but they don't have an edit button on Twitter. That may change very soon, though. Uh, Twitter is now working on an edit button. They say has nothing to do with Elon Musk being on the board. Even though this is something Elon Musk has asked about before, they say they've been it's been in development for months uh, could be coming soon, and I will say this could save some jobs. You want to talk? You want to talk about a real jobs program? It would be an edit button on Twitter. Who? How many? We could save thousands of jobs every single year just by the people who tweeted something not getting fired. Of course, people will just screenshot it and they'll get fired anyway. But we'll deal with that uh, another day. Elon Musk, of course, uh, now famous as a Twitter board member. Uh, but really best known, of course, for Tesla and Tesla, the electric car company that really is an amazing story. And it's an American story. You go back to uh, tooth. Geez, what year was this now? Oh, my God. 2006 or seven, something like that. Uh, a little show starting up on CNN headline news mm-hmm, called 
Glenn Beck. Yes, Glenn Beck on CNN Headline News. Who thought it would be possible? But yes, this is uh, before Fox News. There was CNN Headline News with Glenn. And I remember we did a, a big special on global warming where we featured scientists who maybe had a little bit of a different view, a little skeptical view on some of the mainstream narrative on climate change. And, you know, you have these like four or five segments you do in one of these specials. And the, the second to last segment, I think it was, was talking about uh, some other ways to talk about climate change. Yes, we can talk about uh, all the science around it, and of course that's important. But what we were saying basically with this one segment was, hey, wouldn't it be great is instead of having these government rules that people just did this stuff on their own. If they believe in it, they create something, and they may be able to change the way we, we uh, let's say, look at cars, for example, look at our transportation, maybe electric cars are around the corner. And we featured a little something called a Tesla Roadster that had just been introduced at the time. Uh, and uh, the founder, of course, Elon Musk, uh, who had, uh, you know, who has a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars and decided, you know what, I'm going to risk, you know, all of my money on this. And because I think it's important. And that's what I think is the American way of doing this, right? It's not government regulation. It's somebody stepping to the plate and saying, I think this is important. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and we're going to change things. And Tesla has changed things. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a different story when you're talking about the average person. The average person out there is looking at their gas pump and saying, what on earth is going on? This administration comes in after running a campaign telling us that he's going to do everything he can to change us over to electric cars and clean energy and blah, 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 blah. And then now that gas prices are going through the roof, first he says he's responsible, his policies are responsible for bringing the gas prices down by just a few cents. Then they skyrocket way past that. He blames everybody else. And he says over and over and over again, it's not me. We are not, at it. they are saying it still to this day. We are doing nothing to minimize production of oil and gas in this country. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Were you lying to all your green supporters that whole time? You kept saying over and over and over again, you were going to stop this dirty fossil fuel agenda. And now you're saying you're not doing anything to stop it? Of course, the truth is they've done plenty to stop it. And they've done plenty to get your gas prices even higher. And I want to focus on one particular uh, uh, committee hearing from just a few months ago, back in the day, long ago, when they were still denying it was a problem at all. This is back from October, and it's highlighted by the Washington Free Beacon. Let me give you some highlights here. In late October, the House Oversight and Reform Committee called the CEOs of Exxon, BP, Shell, and Chevron in to explain what steps they are taking to produce less oil and gas. With Representative Hank Johnson, probably the dumbest single representative in the entire uh, city of Washington, let alone just Congress, alleging that the world can't wait any longer. Hmm. Mo Khanna, uh demanded to know whether Shell will decrease its production by 2% each year. Khanna also demanded to know whether Chevron CEO Michael Wirth was embarrassed that his company has increased production while European counterparts were going down. When Worth said that global demand has increased, Kana asked for a commitment to help bring the actual demand of oil production down. Representative Robin Kelly, a Democrat from Illinois, continued Kana's line of questioning Watkins, asking, will Shell commit to reducing gas production as part of its emission re reduction plans? And this has gone on and on and on and on where all of these representatives, the entire Democratic Party, up until like two weeks ago, was telling you they were trying to get oil production down. Now they're denying they've had any effect on this whatsoever. This is not their problem. They didn't do it. It's evil gas companies, evil oil companies, Vladimir Putin, I, I, transphobes. I don't know who they're blaming for your high gas prices now. And in a really stunning update to the story, Democrats scheduled a follow-up hearing to that committee hearing we were just talking about with oil executives for Tuesday, March 8th. That hearing was subsequently canceled last minute with no explanation given. I don't know. I think they have given the explanation. They don't want to say those things again in public because they don't want you to remember them, especially in an election year. This is the way the Democrats have handled gas and oil for a long time. If you go back and you look at fossil fuels, even with Barack Obama as he's coming into office, he's saying he wants to bankrupt coal companies, bankrupt them. I mean, when have you ever heard 
a, a politician come in and say, they're usually saying, well, we're going to create all these jobs. He wanted to bankrupt an industry. He talked about it openly. Uh, this has been a fight they've been engaged in for a very long time. A war on fossil fuels from the left, from Democrats, is very, very real. And it is a big chunk of the reason why you're paying higher gas prices. Now, Vladimir Putin is also a reason. Increased demand is also a reason coming out of COVID. There are other reasons. But Joe Biden is central to this story. And he wants you to know he could be central to the path out of it as well. Under my plan, which is before the Congress now, we can take advantage of the next generation of electric vehicles that a typical driver will save about $80 a month from not having to pay gas at the pump. 80 big dollars per month. What would you do with that $80 per month? Now, look, we'd all like to have $80 per month more, of course. But is it really $80 per month? Most people immediately jumped to the obvious thing here. Buying a new car of any type is obviously not a way to save money. We all know that cars, not exactly the greatest investment in the world. Although right now, maybe they are. <laughs> I don't know. I can't get one. I'm over seven months now and I still don't have a car. I ordered it over seven months ago. Still don't have it. So I don't know. At this point, I'm willing to pay like triple. I, uh, to get a, your hands on a car these days, it is a little bit difficult. But generally speaking, cars not known as the greatest investments in the world. And if you're driving a 2012 uh, Honda Civic, uh, going to a, uh, an electric car is not going to be a savings here. Even if you go to a Nissan Leaf, which is the bottom of the market when it comes to prices for electric cars, you're still paying $35,000, $40,000 for a new car. If you want to go to the average car, you're about 55000 you want to get into a nice Tesla, you're even higher than that. You can go for, for a Tesla, you can easily be in the six figures without even thinking about it. So your $80 a month saving really gets wiped out pretty quickly. But we also have this weird picture of what happens when you get an electric car. This idea that you get an electric car and then you might pay a little bit more at the beginning, but you're going to pay nothing for gas. Well, yes, you'll pay $0 for gas. That's true. However, you do pay for the electricity that charges the car. People don't realize this. I think people have uh, erased it from their memory. They think they're going to get an electric car, and I'm just going to plug it into my house, and it's going to be fine. Well, let's go through this a little bit. First of all, uh, Electricity costs things. I don't know if anyone noticed this. In fact, Elon Musk had to deal with this on Twitter just the other day. Uh, uh, someone asked him, hey, Elon Musk, supercharging has gotten very expensive the last few weeks. This is similar to filling up with gas at this point. Any idea why it's so expensive all of a sudden? A supercharge to fill up uh, the car there uh, for only 20 minutes costs $24.20. Now, that's obviously still cheaper than filling up your gas tank at this point. But that's not nothing. I mean, you're reducing the cost here. But you're not eliminating it. Elon Musk says, uh, we'll find out. Our aspiration is just to make a modest return versus the fully considered price of supercharging. Now, you don't have to supercharge your car. Uh, if you're going to go supercharge a Tesla, it might take you a half an hour to fill up your car. Now, that's still a lot longer than putting some gas uh, in your tank. But it's not hours and hours and hours and hours and, as an, and hours. It's, it, it could be a relatively quick uh, process. If you're on a longer road trip, it might make sense. If you're pulling up to a store and they have a Tesla uh, pump, uh, you know, uh, electricity uh, charger outside, might be something you could do while you're shopping. You know, like the place where I take my kids to get pancakes sometimes has a Tesla charger outside of it, usually empty, but people could go in and while they're getting breakfast, charge up. However, not free. You're still paying something. And you might say, well, I don't have to get it supercharged. I can just charge it at home. How much have you looked into this? Have any of you guys looked into what it's like to charge your car at home? I have over the past seven months. I've gone through a whirlwind of emotions of trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to be driving in the future. And I've looked at the electric cars because, as I've said a million times, back in that 2006 special we did with Glenn Beck, I'm not against uh, Tesla or electric cars. I think they're pretty cool. I've driven a uh, Tesla before. It's incredibly fast. Uh, it, it's really, the technology is amazing. The self-driving stuff they're doing is really cool. There's a lot to be said for Tesla and some other electric cars as well. But there's a lot to think about here. Um, first of all, you can plug in your uh, car in a supercharger and get it charged up in like a half an hour or so. But they're not all over the place, and it's not going to be necessarily easy. Most people are going to do this at home. And you can plug in your electric car into a normal wall outlet and charge it. It's true. 
Have you ever looked at how long that takes to charge? I have. It's about two to three days. Two to three days to charge your car fully in a normal outlet. Now, look, you're not going to run it down to 0% every day. If you're just running back and forth to work, it might work, generally speaking, for you. But it's not an overnight charge out of a normal plug. That's not the way this works. If you want an overnight charge out of a, out of a plug inside your house, you're going to have to do a little legwork. You're going to have to get a more industrial strength electricity supply put in your house. And, you know, that's not the most crazy thing. But again, when we're talking about saving $80 a month, it kind of is a crazy thing. Let me give you the details on how much this is going to charge you. At-home EV charging station installation costs. If your home already has a 240-volt circuit available, the basic installation will cost you between $250 and $400. Now, that's the basic, most easy charge, and that's three to five months of the supposed saving from Joe Biden. However, if you choose to mount a station and run a 50-amp dedicated wiring, it will cost you between $400 and $1,700. Now we're at over 20 months at the high end there, it costs between $1,500 and $4,500 to mount a new station, install a new service panel, do the wiring, and equip it with a 240-volt outlet. You see how ridiculous this gets. The years and years and years of savings can be wiped out by just the basic framework to get your car charged at your house, let alone actually buying the car, or the absolute truth that you're still paying for the electricity that comes through the wall. That's still on your electricity bill. Just because you're not taking your credit card out every time you use it, don't be fooled. You're still paying for it. So this is a uh, this is what people don't understand. They don't look at this stuff all that closely. And, you know, it's fascinating to look at the electric car market for all the attention that Elon Musk has got and, and, and Tesla has received over the years. All of the haranguing, all of the threats of the existential threat. Of, of global warming and all the terrible things it will do. It's going to kill hundreds of millions of people. We know all the stories. We know all the money the government has thrown at electric car companies to, to try to force you to buy it. We know they're paying thousands of dollars every time one of these cars is sold. Well, how many are actually being sold? This is incredible. Carmakers sold a record 657,000 electric cars in 2021, but the figure made up only 4.4% of new car sales, according to analysis by Bloomberg. The percentage doubled from slightly over 2% in 2020. SUVs and pickup trucks comprise about 70% of 2021 sales, according to Kelly Blue Book. So after all of this attention, Electric cars are 4% of the market, and SUVs and trucks are 70% of the market. It's incredible the perception that we have here, and the idea that you're just going to churn these things out and it's going to change this immediate problem is just insanity. Look, the truth is the industry is moving toward electric cars, and they're doing it quickly. By 2030, most of these companies have already announced they're not going to be making any internal combustion engines. This, for lack of a better word, sucks. The internal combustion engine is America in a nutshell. Think about it. We've not only figured out a way to bring power to the people, we then put millions of mobile power plants on the roads. It's incredible. And as a, I think I'm like a lot of Americans here, I will be sad to see the gas-powered car go away, if indeed it actually does. But I don't think we've really thought this out, have we? Yeah, electric cars can do some amazing things. The Tesla is basically a computer on wheels, and it's fast. The Porsche Taycan is an effort to make a real driver's car out of an EV. And they are great-looking cars, and they are basically as fast as any internal combustion engine that has ever been made, regardless of price. Look, there's some cool stuff in this market. I'm not denying it. But what happens with our electricity grid when everyone goes electric? It's old already. It gets overwhelmed often. In California, if you like microwave two burritos in the same week, the entire grid goes into brownout mode. And we want to make everyone drive an electric car? This seems a little crazy, doesn't it? And how about like, just think about all of the oil change service centers on every corner, every one of these quick lube places. All of these just go away. 
the suppliers for the auto industry. What do we do with all those changes and jobs? I mean, look, this is a lot of stuff. And I'm not against innovation. Innovation is a big deal. It's important. And capitalism allows for creative destruction. I'm not opposed to it. If people want electric vehicles, I'm fine with all of that. But we're forcing these changes, in many cases against people's will, just to please the green gods. And we still have no idea what the long-term consequences will be. Remember back when plastic bag bans at grocery stores were all the rage? How did that turn out? Well, there's a new study out now. New analysis suggests that plastic bag ban policies, while well-intentioned, may end up having the opposite effect. The issue that comes up is that grocery bags are viewed as single-use items, but they often get a brief second lease on life as liners for small trash cans. Without the shopping bags available, people look for alternatives, which the researchers suggest means they buy small plastic garbage bags. The study found California communities with bag policies saw sales of four-gallon trash bags increase by 55 to 75 percent and sales of eight-gallon trash bags increase 87 to 110%. That's just changing your grocery bag. Imagine what could happen when they change the way every human being gets to work every day. We've seen what green policies have done so far to gas prices. I guess, at the very least, we can all take solace in the fact that we can make Elon Musk a trillionaire instead of a billionaire, and let him buy all of the social media companies. Stu does America. So have you noticed uh, your gas prices going up at all? Has that been anything that you've happened to maybe notice here or there? I don't know, a couple more dollars coming out of your bank account to fill up. I've noticed it a little bit. I think pretty much everybody has at this point. And of course, this is (laughs) Vladimir Putin's fault. Uh, entirely Vladimir Putin's fault. I assume that's what uh, we had in our latest important press briefing. This, of course, uh, from the White House to TikTokers. The White House is briefing TikTok stars about the war in Ukraine. That's where we are. Khalil Green, 21, a creator with more than 534,000 followers on TikTok, said he wasn't surprised when an invitation arrived from the White House. He said, people in my generation get all our information from TikTok. Which is great because not only is it the dumbest format ever created by mankind, it's completely controlled by the Chinese government. So a wonderful, wonderful uh, development uh, here in our ongoing war against the American people. Kind of a fascinating uh, week to see all of the craziness from the White House. Uh, You know, the, the White House is trying to now come up with this grand strategy to convince you that, you know, the gas price thing, either not really a big deal or not really their fault or nothing they could do about it, or maybe you should just buy a Tesla or whatever their current spin is. I mean, it was only a few months ago when the White House was tweeting this. The average price of gas is down nearly 10 cents per gallon since last month's month's peak and prices continue to fall. Read more about our progress at the pump and POTUS's ongoing work to bring down prices here. So when the prices were going down just a tick after a large increase, the Biden administration took credit for that because of their policies. Now that they're going up, they're blaming everybody else. And they've gone through one particular claim that you may have seen that I think it's time to just thoroughly smash and debunk. This idea that, look, the oil companies, as greedy as they are, just don't want to pump oil from all the existing leases that we have. This was rolled out by one, uh, the one and only Jen Psaki the other day. We have actually produced more oil. It is at record numbers, and we will continue to produce more oil. There are 9,000 approved Mm. drilling permits that are not being used. So the suggestion that we are not allowing companies to drill is inaccurate. The suggestion that that is what is hindering or preventing gas prices to come down is inaccurate. Are they really greedy? Or are they just leaving 9,000... Uh, uh, oil leases just sitting there vacant for no particular reason. Hmm, it's fascinating. Uh, Biden made this same claim. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. 
So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. Mm. We should be honest about the facts. And I've never had a problem with Joe Biden being clear. He's usually crystal clear uh, and precise with all of his language. In fact, the White House is trying to convince you of this point so much, they actually produced a video with Jen Psaki to get it across to you. There are a few facts you should be aware of. U.S. production of oil and gas is rising. In fact, in the first year of the Biden presidency, there was more oil and gas produced in the United States than in the first year of the Trump presidency. And what? And there's opportunities to produce more from here. Oh. But part of this is on the oil companies. Right now, there are 9,000 Nine. approved unused permits Nine. that oil and gas companies could tap into now to ramp up production. Mm. So what the president is doing is ensuring we're taking steps here to get more oil out into the global marketplace. That includes the release of 40 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve back in the fall. And he just announced their planned release of an additional 30 million barrels. Okay, there's so much, uh, so much to go through here. First of all, notice the comparison. The first year of Biden was higher than the first year of Trump. Well, are we supposed to be idiots here? You're coming off a president in President Obama who was really against new oil production, as we uh, all know. Trump gets into office as he's trying to implement his new policies. His lowest year is, of course, his first year because his new policies are not really in effect yet. Instead of comparing it to 2020, he compares it to 2017. Uh, And so does Saki here. Biden's first year was higher than Trump's first year. Now, of course, the same thing applies on the other side. Biden comes in with anti-oil production strategies that aren't fully implemented yet. So his 2021, his first year, is still basically the last year of the Trump administration, uh, at least uh, in effect. So obviously a faulty uh, comparison there. The other part of it is uh, they're bragging about releasing oil out of the uh, strategic oil reserve in the middle of a, a crisis that the strategic oil reserve was designed to deal with. When you have wars, you have a strategic oil reserve to f- make sure you're f- you can fuel your military if a war breaks out. I don't know if anyone's noticed the news lately, but we're kind of close to that line. Maybe a few cent drop in gas prices is not worth emptying the military's emergency fuel supply. But over and over again, you hear that claim, 9,000 wells, 9,000 wells. We've talked to you a little bit about this when Biden first made this claim, but I want to go through some uh, some uh, I want to go into a little bit more depth here. Uh, Steve Malloy, who's been on the show before, um, is a guy who works uh, and studies the oil industry pretty closely, has a real depth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff. And he went on a, a lengthy uh, Twitter thread to try to explain to everybody how this stuff really works. And I'm going to give you some highlights from it. It was it was long and in depth, and I encourage you to read the entire thing. Now, you hear 9,000 leases. Well, right off the bat, 2,200 leases are, are uh, in debate right now. Industry is in court defending over 2,200 leases, most of which cannot be developed while those cases are ongoing. He goes on. Companies must put together a complete leasehold before moving forward, particularly with the long horizontal wells that can cut across multiple leases. Sometimes a new lease is, is needed to combine with existing leases to make a full unit. So if you think about it this way, if uh, you know you had you you, you leased three uh, three uh, um, plots of land that are next to each other, you might have leases for two of them. But if you don't get the third one, you're not able to drill completely, so you have to wait for that third one to come in, and the other two cannot be used. Uh, He goes on, since the Biden leasing ban remains in effect with no onshore leases sales, lease sales since 2020, some leases are held up waiting for new leases or for the government to combine them into a formal unit. Well, what, what do you mean lease ban? We were just told that the Biden administration is all for drilling and making sure production is as high as possible. Record levels. Remember that, of course. Of course, when you look back, you remember that Joe Biden put a ban in on onshore leasing. And in fact, the only reason that that ban was lifted is because a U.S. judge ordered resumption in federal drilling auctions because it was overturned in the courts. So he tried to ban these leases, but it didn't work out. It got overturned in the courts. Now, on the other side of this, there were some uh, 
drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico. These were from the Trump era. The Biden administration did not want to do them, but because of the way the court's early uh, decisions worked out, they felt they had to go on with these offshore leases in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, the court stepped in and helped Biden on this one, saying that it would be too much of a problem with global warming. And the Biden administration decided instead of fighting that, because you know how much they love oil production, instead of fighting that and appealing it, they decided they would not appeal the revoking of these oil leases. So they've done everything they can to make sure new oil leases are not granted. They fought on one side to prevent them initially, eventually losing in court. When they lost in court for new oil leases, they didn't challenge it. They've gone every which way to contort themselves to make sure new oil leases were not started. Steve Malloy goes on. Before allowing development on leases, the government conducts an environmental analysis under uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, which often takes years to complete. Many leases can be hung up by uh, NAPA or awaiting other government approvals. So you get the lease. You want to drill your oil. But the government blocks you with endless environmental regulations and investigations. These are some of the 9,000 leases they're talking about. Not all leases will be developed because after conducting exploratory work, companies may determine that there are not sufficient quantities of oil or natural gas on them. This is something we talked about, uh, I think, last week. If you get if you get a lease approved, you go in and you explore because you believe there's going to be oil there. Well, you might find out that there is not enough oil there to make it worth it or that the oil is so difficult to get to that it's just not economically viable to drill there. That doesn't mean that you uh, don't want to drill oil. Again, it's the pitch from the Biden administration where we hear about how greedy these oil companies are. Well, if they had tons and tons of oil they could just pump and make endless amounts of money, why wouldn't they be doing that? They're not doing that because either it doesn't make economic sense and they would lose money, or there's no oil there in the first place, or, of course, they're held up with the government. Uh, For example, there are 4,621 permits to drill awaiting approval. The government could approve these permits now, enabling companies to forward with development. There are about 9,173 outstanding approved permits, but these are there are factors that cause companies to wait to drill those wells. And of course, the problem here is that these companies never know what the hell is going on with the government. They come in and they have Donald Trump as president, who's friendly toward uh, their industry uh, and oil production. And they start these development projects and then they get knocked out in court or by the Biden administration when they come in. And, and this is not a, some crazy thing that I'm making up. The Biden administration literally ran on stopping Donald Trump from doing all these evil things to the environment as they caused it, uh, called it. Remember day one and week one and month one of the Biden presidency? Here's the headline, and this is with lots of help from the Biden uh, press office to make sure that this stuff got out there because it was everywhere. The Trump administration rolled back more than 100 environmental rules. Here's the full list. So Trump was very, very uh, evil. And you see here 30 uh, air pollution and emissions to 19 drilling and extraction uh, uh, bans. And they were uh, over overruled. And you see over and over again that the Biden administration came back to right those wrongs. That was their big philosophy. They believed they could come in and say, hey, we are the environmental saviors you've been looking for. And they came in and he, you know, Biden went to work almost immediately to make sure there was absolutely no sign of what the evil Trump administration did left. They went hard to overturn Trump's efforts to make fossil fuels much more uh, plentiful here in the country and around the world to 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 pad the global market for events just like the ones we're facing now. Malloy goes on, because of the uncertainty of operating on federal lands, companies must build up a sufficient inventory of permits before rigs can be contracted and to ensure the permits stay ahead of the rigs. It's a delicate balancing act. You know, this is not like, okay, uh, that lease is approved, let's go over there. They have to make sure everything is in line because all of this costs a fortune. It's all a lot of giant capital outlays at the beginning uh, before you start getting the profits out of these wells. Federal permit to drill is not the only government approval required. 
acquired. Rights of way can take years to acquire before companies can access their leases and put in natural gas gathering systems. The administration has worked with anti-oil and gas activists to slow pipeline infrastructure. Without pipelines to move the oil and natural gas produced, wells cannot be developed. You see why there's thousands of wells that are not developed? Capital must be acquired. Activist investors, encouraged by an administration intent on expanding its financial regulatory powers, have worked to debank and decapitalize the industry. I don't know if you've heard of this idea before, where the administration and activists work with companies and banks and financial institutions to make sure unfavored industries are no longer able to do their business. You might want to read about it in The Great Reset, a book available now from our one and only Glenn Beck. It's exactly what the book's about. And it's what Biden and the left have been doing on energy for quite some time. The Biden administration has gone to great freaking lengths to blame everybody but themselves for the rise in gas prices. So let me give you just a brief rundown. This is from the Washington Free Beacon. Just some of the excuses they've given so far. Gas prices already the highest in U.S. history. Uh, the national average $4.23 a gallon tonight. I'm going to work like the devil to bring gas prices down. The significant reason why prices are up is because of COVID affecting the supply chain. He's going to do everything we can, everything he can, to reduce the impact on the American people, including uh, the price of gas at the tank. Gas supply companies are paying less and making a lot more. He's suggesting that the industry's outsized profits and returns to shareholders are to blame for what he calls an unexplained gap as consumer prices rise. Take a look at uh, oil prices. Uh, That is a consequence of, thus far, the refusal of of, uh, Russia or uh, or the OPEC nations to uh, pump more oil. And that's because of the supply being withheld by OPEC. The increase in the anticipated continued increase, which is, I think, what some of your colleagues were asking about, that that is a a direct result of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. It's going to go up. (laughs) Can't do much right now. Russia's responsible. (laughs) How can anyone believe this stuff? Biden believes he can convince you that he had nothing to do with gas prices going up. That's because Biden believes you are dumb. Of course, no president is completely responsible for gas prices. You might not know this if you watch the media's coverage of the George W. Bush presidency, but it's true. And yes, Vladimir Putin is making things worse. There's no doubt about it. But Biden has been adversarial to the oil and gas industry from even before day one of his presidency. He ran on reversing Trump's efforts to produce more oil and gas. And then he got into office and overturned many of the 100 environmental rules Trump had altered, many of which specifically designed to make us energy independent. He owed favors to his supporters on the far left, and you are the one who is paying him back. When gas prices were low, he bragged about taking on big oil. When they got high, he bragged about his policies being responsible for lowering them a few cents. And now that they're at a record, he's blaming everyone else in the country for not being prepared. 